Well, this morning we are continuing to take a break from our series in the book of First Thessalonians as we participate in this Advent season. You heard Joey define the word Advent as waiting, but it's sort of also coming, right? It's, it's waiting on the coming or the return of Christ. Uh, we wait upon the coming or the arrival of Christ. And so Christianity has at its core then this notion of Advent, so much so that our faith is built on waiting on Christ. As we will consider this morning in the Old Covenant, right? the saints of old waited for the first coming of Christ, and now in the New Covenant, we wait for the second and final coming of Christ. And so it's for this reason that Christians have, for hundreds of years, used the Christmas season to teach ourselves to wait on the return of Christ. So we use the Advent wreath. That's one way that we teach ourselves. Uh, Many of you are going through Advent devotionals, right, to teach you how to wait till December 25th or Epiphany uh, in January. One of the two, you're reading devotionals to kind of get your heart to anticipate that day wherein we'll celebrate a gift. And so that's what we do. Christians seize upon this season to wait upon Christ, to teach us to do, guys, what we ought to be doing every portion of the year, waiting on the return of Christ. And I'm ashamed to say that in many ways, uh, I really thought about waiting when I was much younger as it relates to the Christmas season. Maybe you were like me in that way. When I was younger, after school would begin, maybe into October, I started counting the days to Christmas. And I couldn't wait. Right, And then Thanksgiving would come and we would eat dinner. And in our home after that, you couldn't do anything Christmas. I know some of you don't do that. Shame on you. But nevertheless... Uh, we waited till Thanksgiving, and after Thanksgiving, we would go buy a tree, and we'd put the tree up, and we would listen to music and go shopping and the like. I mean, it really was, in every sense of that Christmas song, the most blessed time, most wonderful time of the year. And we would be waiting. I would be waiting every single day, counting the days, till December the 25th, when I would get gifts. Get gifts. G.I. Joes. Transformers. That's what I was waiting on. Baseball cards, baseballs. I couldn't wait. And we would be with family, right? We would be with family. I would be, we would, most of the time we'd drive up to Tennessee and I would go to see my family there. It was the best time. We would wait for that season. I would wait for that season. And so, friends, you can see why Christians have seized upon this season as we have. It makes so much sense, doesn't it? So many instructive parallels between this season and our hope as Christians. Waiting upon the gift of Christ. Such that the day that Jesus returns, we will see him and enjoy him as the greatest gift of all. Because that's what Christianity is all about. Seeing and savoring Christ. And so that's what we're going to consider this morning. The gift of Christ. This little Advent series, what we're doing is we're considering the gifts of Christ. Uh, And last week we considered the gift of salvation. This morning we'll consider the gift of Christ himself. Next week, John Erickson will be here. Uh, who is uh, part of the Treasuring Christ Together Network. He's going to come and preach to us about the gift of the incarnation. But again, this morning, we're going to be considering the gift of Christ himself. And I'm going to be hopping around in the, past, in, the, in the Bible, different passages. So if you're looking for one verse to kind of open up to and look at, you can turn to John 17.3. That's really what we're going to drive at. That's the idea. And speaking of ideas, here's just a big idea to orient you to all that we're about to say, I'm about to say. Big idea is this, love the giver, not just his gifts. Love the giver, not just his gifts. That's the idea that would be guiding us this morning. We'll consider this by considering the two advents. 
Well, consider this idea of Christ as the true gift from the two Advents. The first Advent, as it were, from the Old Testament saints in the Old Covenant looking forward to the first coming of Christ. And guys, that's where we're going to spend most of our time. So when I get to the second point, don't think I'm going to launch off into another time uh, of equal distance. But the second point will be us New Testament saints in the New Covenant looking forward to the second and final coming. That's what we'll do this morning. So let's first off consider the waiting for Christ in the Old Covenant. Waiting for Christ in the Old Covenant. And when you open up the Bible, and if you're not a Christian, you're unfamiliar to how the Bible works, first off, you should know that the Bible is not just a bunch of separate books. It's one book that is really tied together in Christ. And right from the beginning of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, we get this notion of waiting on Christ. Right from the beginning. And in Genesis chapter 3, we find there that Adam and Eve, they rebel against God. They try to be like God. And uh, instead of that, they're introducing sin into the world. They're separated from God. God then speaks to the evil one, uh, Satan, and says this. Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And notice the shift. And he shall bruise your head. And you shall bruise his heel. And so God says there that there's going to be this struggle between the evil one, the offspring of the evil one, and the offspring of humanity. So evil and humanity are going to be having this struggle in in all of the world until a he, until a person, to a man is going to come to crush the head of evil. But in the process, he's going to get wounded himself. And so the reader from the very beginning of the Bible is left waiting For the arrival of this man, this head crusher that will destroy evil. That's right from the beginning of the Bible. We're left to wait upon him. Then later we get this promise of this Messiah as we learn later. that This one that we are to wait on in Genesis chapter 12. Where the Lord promises to Abraham that one of his offspring would be a blessing to all the nations. Offspring of Abraham would be a blessing to all the nations. And we saw the promise did not go through the line of Ishmael as Muslims believe today, but instead the Bible is very clear that it goes through Isaac. And Isaac then has two sons, uh, one of which is Jacob. The promise goes through Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons that multiply into a mighty nation that are eventually enslaved in Egypt, as the Lord said they would be, for 400 years. And so they waited, God's people, the Israelites, waited in that slavery in Egypt to be delivered. They waited for that deliverance. And God delivered them out of that slavery. And how was it God delivered them out of slavery there in Egypt after 400 years? He delivered them by the blood of an unblemished male lamb. An unblemished male lamb delivers God's people out of slavery. And they go through the sort of baptismal waters of the Red Sea, wherein the Red Sea vanquishes those encroaching armies of the Egyptians, swept away where they sing. After this, they are delivered out of slavery. After the Red Sea, they are then given the law through Moses. The law through Moses. And they are uh, to take that law into the land that the Lord will give them. And there in the land, God would dwell with them amidst their people. Amidst the people. They would be a holy people set apart from the rest of the world. And Moses also tells them in Deuteronomy 18, towards the end of the first kind of major section of the Bible... Uh, Moses says that there's going to be one like him that would come. A Moses-like figure that would be this kind of lawgiver redeemer. This law-giving redeemer. Therefore, uh, we see at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, they're still waiting. They're waiting on an evil head-crushing man. 
that's going to be the offspring of Abraham that's going to be a Moses-like redeemer. They're waiting. They're waiting on him. Well, then they then eventually come into the land uh, where they have everything go just as the Lord said it would. That includes this temple. They construct this temple that God's presence would live in the midst of them. But even before the building of that temple, there was a man by the name of David. David was a king of Israel, and God makes a promise to him in 2 Samuel chapter 7, telling him that one of his offspring, from his offspring, would be this forever king. This king would come from David. And after this, things in Israel are going great. God's people were in God's place under God's rule and blessing as they waited for the fulfillment of all of God's promises in this coming of the Messiah. Everything's going well as they're waiting for the arrival of this Messiah figure. But the problem is, is the Israelites were much like us. They didn't like to wait. The Israelites didn't like to wait. Going all the way back to Abraham, God promises Abraham around about the age of 75 that he's going to have this son that's going to be the offspring to many, right? But he's 75, 80, 85, no kid. And so he does what we too often do and tries to sort of manifest this promise on his own by sleeping with Hagar and bringing about a child. Uh, So instead of waiting on God, they tried to bring about their own blessing. In the same way, Israel, after they're delivered from slavery, they get tired of waiting on Moses that's up on the mountain meeting with God to get the law. They get tired of waiting on him, and so they form their own God of gold and a golden calf to worship it and call that their redeemer. And later, after they even get into the land, they get tired of waiting on the Messiah. And so what do they do but instead adopt the gods around them, the idols around them, and even bring those idols into the temple complex with God? And all the while, by the way, they never rejected their devotion. At least they said they never uh, rejected their devotion to God himself. And so what would God do with all of this disobedience? Well, God did what any just God would do. He had to punish them by separating them from his place. In the same way that he did with Adam and Eve, right? He exiles them out of the land where God and his presence were. They go out of the land into exile into the east. But even then, God did not give up on his promise to bring about this Messiah. He still did not give up on it. Even amidst all of their disobedience, because God is the one that is merciful and gracious and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love. And so after a time of exile, God allows his people back into the land. And when they come back into the land, he instructs them to first rebuild the temple wherein he would dwell in their midst. Have that priority, right, of having God. Learn from your mistakes, what you did. Come back in and put God as first. And so do that by rebuilding the temple. And upon them coming back, upon the the Israelites coming back into the land, they do, or at least they begin to rebuild that temple until they got bored with building God's house and they began to build their own. Until they got bored with it, they began to build their own. The book of Haggai talks about this. This is sort of the old time, the end of the old covenant period of the Old Testament. We learn in the book of Haggai, chapter 1, verse 4 to 6, the Lord is speaking through Haggai to the people. And he says, Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house, speaking of the temple, lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you have never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. In other words, what God is saying to them as they come back in here and they still have not learned their lesson. 
They continue to do their uh, do things in their own way, in their own time, and yet they never actually are satisfied, God's saying. And he goes on in Haggai 1.9, You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. In other words, friends, they weren't willing to tend to God in his house. They were much more interested in their own house and building their own house. And yet, even after all of their unwillingness to wait upon the Lord, uh, look at how the Old Testament ends. At least this period ends in the book of Haggai. The Lord says that he's going to overthrow kingdoms and nations. And then he says at the very end of the book of Haggai, chapter 2, verse 23, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. See, what the Lord is saying, Zerubbabel is a king in uh, Israel at the time. And so what he's saying is even after all of their unfaithfulness, after all their unwillingness to wait upon God, God says, I'll still make good on that promise to David. I'll still bring about a king in the line of David that will rule the nations. And so this is what we waited for. So therefore, the Old Testament closes, still waiting, still longing to see this Lord's answer to his prayer, the Lord answer to his promises. They're still waiting on this coming Messiah, the one that will be the offspring of Abraham, the offspring of David, the greater Moses who would bring the law and the deliverance, the one that would bring about, as the Lord promised, a new covenant. And in that new covenant, this is significant, listen to the language. We read about this in places like Ezekiel 37, Jeremiah 31 and 33. This new covenant that this Messiah would bring would have everybody that is in it to know the Lord. Uh, we even find in there that those nobody will have to say, know the Lord. But instead, those that are actually in the new covenant, as opposed to the old covenant, which they did have to tell people to know the Lord, in the new covenant, they will all know the Lord. And so that's the one they wait on. It's going to bring this new covenant. At the close of the Old Testament, they're still waiting on this one to come. The one that would be born of a virgin. Wonderful counselor, mighty God. Emmanuel, God with us. And all of this is promised to God's people, even though God's people had not been faithful. The Israelites cared more about themselves. They loved God's gifts more than the giver, God himself. And yet, while most of old covenant people did not wait upon the Lord, we actually find that some did. Some did wait upon the Lord. But before we turn to them, friends, what do we learn from these old covenant people? that weren't really waiting on Christ, that weren't really waiting on the Lord. What do we learn from them? Well, it's fairly simple, isn't it? They seem to love the benefits of the relationship with God more than they love the benefactor. They loved God more than his gifts. As evidenced by their unwillingness to wait upon God, to wait upon God's Messiah, and in favor, trying to get all that the Messiah had to give to them in the now, in their own ways, by using their own industry. Again, we think back through these stories. Abraham and Isaiah wanting their timing for a, for a child. They loved their timing more than God's timing. They didn't want to wait on God, and so Abraham slept with Hagar. Israel didn't want to wait on Moses to come down, so they created a God of their own. Uh, Israel appointed a, a king in Saul that was like the rest of the nations instead of waiting on God's king. 
Israel wanted the quick and easy, tangible benefits of idols that they could benefit, that they could manipulate to get what they wanted, not waiting on the blessing of the presence of God within them. And even after rebuke and exile, they didn't want to wait on God by building God's temple. They cared more about their own house. They weren't willing to be waiting on God, but instead they liked his benefits. And so, friends, I wonder if you've ever experienced something like this yourself. If you've ever given a gift to someone that was costly to yourself, that the person seemed to love the gift more than they loved you that gave it to them. You ever had that happen to you? Consider the mother, for instance, that maybe carried, that bore a child, that tended to that child. And yet when that child was older on Mother's Day, they couldn't even so much as call the mother to tell them thank you. Consider the soldier that goes off and fights in a foreign war and loses friends and has emotional scars for having fought in that war, comes back to their country to have their government not even care for them or thank for them the citizenry, not even to thank them for their sacrifice. What do you think that makes the soldier feels like? What does the husband who doted on his wife, worked long hours to provide for her, lavishing in her in words and protection, what does he feel like when he comes home after a long day's work again to see her with another man? What do you think that feels like? Especially when his wife says back to him, I couldn't wait for you to come home any longer. Friends, this is what we do when we love God's gifts more than we love God the giver. Israel wanted kings and nations, peace and protection, deliverance, houses. They wanted a land of milk and honey. But in the end, most of them wanted those gifts and they didn't really care much about God and his Messiah. They'd rather not wait on him, but instead they would use him and fashion their own idols that would give them what they wanted more readily. All the while, by the way, again, still saying that they loved God. Paul will go on to say that in doing this, we then trade the creator for the creature. I wonder if that's you. If that's what you're doing. Is that us? Do you love the gifts of God more than the giver of God himself? As evidenced by your your willingness to not wait upon him, but instead using God to get what you really want. Loving the gifts more than the giver. Well, friends, it wasn't everyone in Israel. Not everyone was like this. There were some who waited upon God for God. Moses, for instance, was one of these when the Lord said that he would not deliver them as a result of the golden calf incident and this worship of a golden calf. God says, listen, I'll deliver you into the land. I'll let you go in there. You can have it. I promised it to you. I'm going to give it to you, but I'm not going with you. Do you remember what Moses said? Well, then don't bring us out. We don't want to go unless you go with us. And the Lord kindly said, then I would. Moses is a good example that loved the giver more than the gifts. We can consider David. David who had all of this power, all of this wealth, all of the success of the world, as it were. And yet he, after this, says in Psalm 16, you are my Lord and I have no good apart from you. The sorrows of those that run after another God shall multiply. But the Lord is my chosen portion of my cup. Because in your presence is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. David believed that. He believed that God was the true gift. Even after all of the worldly wealth. We can think about Hannah. There's a good example of this. 
who was deep in depression for never having had a child. And she prayed to God, look upon my affliction, remember me and deliver me a son and I will give him back to you. And the Lord does give her a son. And what did she do? But drop him off at the temple, giving him back to the Lord. And after she did that, what did Hannah say? She wanted this gift. God gave her the gift. And what did Hannah say? First Samuel 2, 1 and 2. My heart exalts, not in the gift, but in the Lord. My horn exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. That's Hannah. A perfect example of one that treasured the gift of God even more than his gifts. The same is true of, again, Moses and David, but also Joshua and Isaiah and Jeremiah. And that man of the old covenant, Simeon. For it was in the fullness of time that God sent forth his son, the Messiah. Born of the Virgin Mary in the city of David, just as God promised. He was God in the flesh. And he was indeed the son of Abraham, the son of David, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And it was that child when on the eighth day, after having been born to Joseph and to Mary, they did as the law required of them. And on the eighth day brought them in, brought him into the temple to have him circumcised. And Simeon, a man of whom it was said in Luke 2.24, this one that was, quote, waiting on the consolation of Israel. And that consolation was a person of whom Simeon would have known this Messiah figure. And so Simeon waiting day after day after day, God had promised him that he would not die until he saw this consolation. And so there, uh, Simeon waited in the temple day after day. And the text tells us that he was moved by the Spirit. He goes into the temple wherein he sees Mary and Joseph, uh, Mary presumably holding the child Christ, and he takes up Jesus into his arms. And he says in Luke 2, 29 and 32 to 32, Moses, or sorry, Simeon looks at Jesus and says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. Don't lose sight of these words, friends, for my eyes have seen your salvation. He's looking at Christ. Salvation is a person. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation for the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. And friends, there on that same night was another person by the name of Anna. Anna, who had been widowed for many years, never remarrying, stood there in the temple waiting for that same consolation. For some 60 plus years, it was said of her. In Luke chapter 2, verse 37 to 38, she was worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God. Thanks to God. Thanks to God. And to speak of him to all who were what? Waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. There's a person who had life not go her way. And yet she still waited on God and spoke of him in the temple. Yes, indeed, friends, for while the many throngs may love the gifts more than the giver of God, there were a few that loved the gifts because they loved their God. And they waited upon him. And they waited upon God because they knew that he was good. 
They knew that he was trustworthy. They knew that he was faithful. So they waited on him for him till they finally saw him in the flesh and rejoiced for him as their greatest treasure. And it's said of that treasure, Christ himself. It was said of him in John chapter 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we, having seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For the law was given through Moses, and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. In referencing of Christ, He has made Him known. And what was it we saw in the Lord's Christ? What was this glory that is referenced there in John chapter 1? What is this glory that when the, when the, Old, when the New Testament is said, we've seen God, we've seen His glory... What is it they're talking about when they see that glory? Because otherwise, right, had we looked at him, been living at that time, it would have looked no different than you or I. Well, the glory that we saw in the person of Christ was that in every way he was perfect. The source of every good gift. He said of himself, not abolishing the law, but he came to fulfill the law. Never once, friend, did he sin. Think about that. Do you think that is glorious? The fact that the people talk about resurrection is hard to believe. The most hardest thing to believe in Christianity is that there was a man that lived that never sinned. And that was Jesus. And it's true. He never sinned. That's the glory of Christ. He was tempted in every way and yet never failed. He never mistreated or lusted after a woman. Think about that. Instead, he was a safe place for prostitutes. Willing to love them and to forgive them. Having all authority... Jesus never abused his authority. In fact, he used his authority for the good of others. Instead, he used his authority to, as he said, proclaim liberty to the captives, good news to the poor, recover the sight of the blind, to proclaim uh, the year of the Lord's favor, binding up wounds to some, and being a friend to others who never had one. That was Jesus. He was not only a king, but he was kingly. He was not only righteous, but he lived righteously. He not only taught about heaven, he was heaven, is heaven. When he did as the sacrificial lamb of the Passover, Jesus lays down his life for his people, paying the ransom that he did not have to pay. He, as Genesis 3 said, had his heel bruised as he crushed the head of the serpent on the cross, destroying sin and death that great evil of sin and death that was introduced into the world. Jesus there takes the wrath upon his back for his people. And there, defeating it three days later, through the resurrection, through the ascension, and then that soon return. This, friends, is the gospel. So that we that believe do not have to pay the ransom note for our sin because we never can. Jesus did it perfectly. The forgiveness of our sins. And more than that. Listen, more than that. Yes, More than that. You say, what is more than the forgiveness of sins? That we might know Him. If you don't get that, you don't quite understand the gospel. Listen to what Jesus says. Talk about eternal life in Christian circles, right? What is Jesus, the glorious one, the one of whom they waited upon, what does He define as eternal life? We have it right there in John chapter 17, verse 2 to 3. The night before he goes and is brought to the cross, Jesus prays to the Father and he says this. 
He says, you have given him, referencing himself, you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all, not to everybody, to all whom you have given him. There's a group of people God has given to Christ. They have eternal life. And this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Friends, the good news of the gospel is not the forgiveness of sins in and of itself. The only reason why the forgiveness of sins is good news is because it gives you access to God. And that's the good news. That you get to know and enjoy God. So important that we understand that. That is what Jesus says. What we eat, we ought to say, is eternal life. And by the way, this is what other people in the Bible have said throughout. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also suffered once for sins, referencing the gospel, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? That he might bring us to God. Right? We can think even the Lord's word through the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23 to 24. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That is the good news. This, of course, is exactly what Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 3, verse 18. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as trash, as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ. The great gift of Christmas, friends, is not forgiveness in heaven and peace or joy in and of themselves. They are all good because they come through the person and the work of Christ wherein we can know him. And then by extension, know these other great gifts. The gift of Christmas is that God has given his son so that through him we might know God. Be in loving fellowship with him. Down through the ages, friends, the people of God waited upon him. Throngs of him, throngs of those people traded him for his gifts. But for those few, for those happy few, I pray we happy few waited on the Lord's Christ. And when he came, they treasured him for him because they knew that he was the source of all good gifts. And so I wonder, friend, is this your gospel? Is this the gospel that you believe? This is the one that you commend. Would you understand this to be the great gift of Christianity? Do you understand that the great gift of Christianity is that you know God? You know God's Christ. Is that the one that you wait upon? Enjoying his many gifts. Yes. Don't walk out of here saying the pastor said don't enjoy the gifts. That's not what I'm saying. Enjoy the gifts because you enjoy the giver. Is that your gospel? Friends, millions upon millions have missed it. Many of them sometimes sitting in church pews like this one. Assuming that they were inside the covenant of God like the people of old. Cherishing the gifts more than the giver. I wonder, is that you? Do you love the benefits of Christ more than you love Christ himself? Which is to say, do you know him? Do you know God in Christ. And by saying, do you know him? I'm not saying, do you know about him? The devil knows about him. The devil even knows and believes that Christ is glorious. But he doesn't treasure it. 
I'm not asking if you know about Christ. I'm asking, do you trust and treasure Christ? When Jesus says that eternal life is knowing the Father and the Son, friend, he doesn't mean just knowing about the Father and the Son. He's driving there at intimacy, which is what Christ died to gain. Like a husband says of his wife, like a mother says of her daughter, that others may know, not just know about them, but only those in that covenant would know them, right? As the, father, as the husband knows the wife or as the mother knows the daughter. Do you have eternal life? Do you know Christ? And so you, some of you say, okay, Nathan, can you, can you tease that out? Can you help me think that through a little bit more? What do you mean exactly? What does the text mean? Forget what I mean. What does the text say? What does it mean to know Christ? Three things. It means that you have information, affection, and submission. You have information, affection, and submission. You have the basic pieces of information about the gospel that you know and believe. Right, that Jesus was fully God and fully man, lived a sinless life, died in atoning death on the cross for your sins. That's sufficient alone to save you. Was buried and bodily rose on the third day, is ascended and will someday return. Those basic facts, you have the information. And then secondly, the affection. That is, affection for the person of those truths. You love those, not only the truths, but you love the person of those truths. You love him. And then thirdly, submission. You're willing to submit to him. Follow him. As king and Lord. See, friends, if you only love him for what he can do for you, well, friend, that's no different than the the gold digger that loves the man for his wealth. Do you know him? Do you love him in this way? If you only have information about him, absent of any meaningful affection or submission to his will, then, friend, you are in danger of being just like those Israelites that did not wait upon him for him but just his gifts. And friends, you should know, I've pastored for almost 15 years now, and I can tell you that it is hard to find people that are waiting on Christ for Christ. And I can tell you that it's very common to run into people that are very interested in knowing about Christ. Very common for people to want to know about Christ, think about him, even like him. Hard to find people that love him for him. Such that it's true that uh, sometimes I say in elders' meetings, that people just seem to really not very, be very interested in following Jesus. And I'll say to the elders, they're just not really that into Jesus. Right? We, we tend to sort of look at those moments and go, right, well, they're not obeying this command or that command. They need to do this. They need to do that. Yes, that's all true. But at the end of it, at the bottom of it, they're just not really that into Jesus. Like the Israelites of old. They want to have their own way because they don't love God for God. I screw up. But when I screw up, like I'm repenting and I want to get back right in fellowship with him because I love him. I trust him. Because he's the gift. And so, friends, it is my conviction that this point right here, this is the blazing center of all that is right and all that is wrong with Christianity in America. You can draw a line as Jesus will do at his second coming and separate the sheep from the goats in this way. On the one side, you have the goats, those that are not in Christ. Those that are into Jesus for what just what he can do for them. They maintain, though, at the same time, they, they maintain their own sovereignty, their own autonomy, while still maybe taking his name. Inside of that group of the goats, you might get some in there maintaining their sovereignty, their own uh, autonomy. You might get some that, on the one hand, will have love, but not have the truth. Or the opposite. They'll have the truth, but they won't have love. And the reason why they do this 
is because they don't wait upon the Lord for the Lord. They don't know eternal life as Jesus defines it, knowing him, loving his, him as the final and true gift. But then on the other side, you get this true sheep, right? The people for whom Christ died to gain, his beloved wife, his friends, the ones that love his gifts, but they do so in a manner that is in keeping with Christ. They love the truth and they love to love, right? Love and truth. They love to love him. They love the benefits because they love the benefactor. So friends, we learn in Scripture that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. The gospel defined in 2 Corinthians 4 is the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ. He is the gift of Christmas. He brings many treasures, to be sure, but none compared to him, the source of all those good gifts. Will you wait upon him for him? Or will you tend to your own paneled houses and use him to get what you really want out of him? The fact is, beloved, we are very in a very similar position of those Jews of old in a lot of ways. For as they waited for Christ in the first coming, we too wait for Christ in his second and final coming. And this is where I want to leave us. It's waiting for Christ in the new covenant. Waiting for Christ in the new covenant. So while we are in a better position than the Israelites for having now realized the King of glory, our position in some ways is similar to theirs. And that we have to wait for the final consummation of the gift. God has given us his spirit, right? That's the significant difference. That's how we can know him. Because of the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice, God deposits his spirit within us. And we can know him in that sense now. But we still wait upon his bodily return. As we considered just a few weeks ago in 1 Thessalonians. His coming to us again in body and spirit, never to leave us in body again making all things new upon his return. When he returns, as we considered a few weeks ago, our taking on resurrected bodies on a resurrected earth that we might forever enjoy our resurrected Savior, forever. Jesus tells us to wait upon this day like this in Luke twelve thirty six. He says, be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast. That's Jesus' words. Paul agrees by telling us in Titus two thirteen that we are waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The angels of God promise us in Acts chapter 1, verse 11, this Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you call, saw him go into heaven. And of course, Jesus says himself in John seven fourteen three. and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself. Why? Because he is our treasure. That where I am, you may be also. When we say amen, right? That's what we want. Indeed, the final words of the Bible. You can go there and check me out on this. The last words of the Bible. In the book of Revelation 22, verse 20. Jesus says, surely I am coming soon. And those that love him for him. Those that are waiting upon him. Say in response, amen. Come. And we say that and we wait for that because we know and believe that he's the gift. He's the treasure. Every good and perfect gift, as James tells us, comes through him. Eternal life is knowing him. And it is because of his finished work on the cross that we wait for him by the power of the Holy Spirit. And listen, if you want to be spirit-led, if you want to be spirit-led, have a Holy Spirit church, well, then you do what the Spirit 
Jesus says is supposed to do. And what is it Jesus says the Spirit is to do? John 16, 14. He, the Spirit, it's a he, it's not an it. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So that's what, right, we're not, we're not waiting in ourselves, or we're not kind of white-knuckling it to wait on Jesus. The Spirit has been deposited for those that repent and believe upon it, to wait on the glory of the return of Christ, which leads me to the question that I hope all of you are asking at this point. Okay, Nathan, how do I do that exactly? How do I wait on him for him? How do I receive the gifts of the gospel, but know that he's the giver and treasure him the most? How do I do that? Well, it goes back to that definition that I gave before. Information, affection, submission. By the power of the Holy Spirit, working through your life, your renewed wills and appetites and affections, by the power of the Spirit, working through your renewed will, by the power of the gospel, get that information, which is to say, scour God's word to see Christ. And scour in the word, study this book, because it's about him, by the way. Right? Hopefully you've seen that. Am I just skipping a rock across the Bible? Scour the word like you would not... Not like, not like you would sort of scour the word like a scientist in a classroom. No, not like that. Scour the word to get information about Christ as you would on a third date. You ever been on a third date? Right? What happens on a third date? First, if, you, if you're on a third date, the first two dates must have gone pretty good. Right? You're sort of past those first couple sort of times of sort of getting to know each other, by this point on the third date, you already know sort of where they're from and if they have brothers or sisters, where they work. No, no. Third date, a little different, right? Third date, right, you're trying to, to see what are they like and not like? What do they love? What do they laugh at? What do they cry at? What's their heart, right? At this point, third date, what's their heart? Scour the information of the Bible about Jesus in that way. Like a third date, trying to... See, you were already allured by him. So get to know him. Get an information about the person of Christ and his heart. And then, secondly, affection. Take the information and plead with the Spirit to grow an affection for Christ. Right? So many of us live in the abstract of Jesus. He's just this abstract sort of Jesus that's sort of out there. But once we gain information about the real person of Christ, then ask the Spirit to give you an affection for that person. God, help me to love him. Help me to know him. Help me to treasure him. This thing and that thing. And maybe especially the things that you don't particularly like about Jesus, but you see is clearly taught. God, help me to love that. Have affection for him. And guys, this is going to involve that much neglected discipline of Christian meditation. Right? We, we tend to think meditation is an Eastern thing. That's not true at all. God owns the world, so it's an Eastern thing, Western thing, Southern thing, Northern thing. It's all thing, right? Christ, meditation is about not emptying our minds, but filling our minds with the truth of Christ and treasuring it, which in particular involves the imagination. And so involve your biblically informed imaginations. Consider you can have an affection for Christ by biblically and being biblically informed and imagining these wonderful truths about Jesus. Imagine not only that he defeated your sin, but he defeated your sin. Imagine his uh, healing the wounds of that friend that you see suffering. Imagine his hating the evil that you see in the world. Imagine his loving the good in that fellow church member. And speaking of church member, imagine him loving, cherishing, and treasuring the church and all of her sloppiness and slothfulness because he loves the church. 
often means to manifest His glory through the church, Ephesians 3. Imagine Him loving the Father from eternity. Imagine Him going to the cross to take your sin. Imagine His resurrection. Imagine heaven. And especially, imagine you knowing Him like He knows you. Try to think about that. Gather information. Plead for affection through meditation. And then thirdly, submission. Follow Him. Simply put, follow Him. Not as you would necessarily follow a policeman or a principal or even as a parent, but follow Him as you would a bridegroom. Because that's what He is. The perfect heavenly husband that leads us into the truth. Jesus makes this so clear. If you love me, you obey my commandments. And he goes on to say, my commands are not burdensome. And the reason why God's commands are not burdensome is because they're the way to knowing him. Until our struggles, friends, will be gone. When upon his return, we will no longer have to wait We will no longer have to struggle with following Him. We will no longer have to struggle with an affection for Him. We will no longer have to struggle in some sense with information about Him, though we will eternally grow up into information. You will not have all the information. I don't know if you know that. The day you arise in heaven, you will not have all the information you will have. But for eternity, you will grow up into Him. But nevertheless, we will no longer have to struggle. But instead, we will have our faith be turned to sight. And we will see Him for Him. And we will agree with Simeon with a slight adjustment. When looking upon our Savior face to face, we can say when we see him, Lord, now I need not depart, but forever live in peace. According to your word, because I have seen you, my salvation, our salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation and forever lasting glory. Yes, friends, this Christmas, let it be known to you. Let it be known to those around you. Let it be known to the whole world that Christians believe this is eternal life. Knowing God, the Father, and Christ Jesus, His Son. We wait for His arrival because we long to be with Him, the giver of all good gifts. We believe that He's the greatest gift of all. Wait upon Him this Christmas.